Connecticut and Massachusetts, Z&M Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We gotcha. Google or add us on Facebook at Z-A-N-D-M-Homes.com. Baxi's musical podcast. In April of this year, I had this amazing conversation with the legendary Jim Scafish. In 1976, Jim and his band, Scafish, would single handedly become the first punk or new wave or avant-garde band in Chicago. During that conversation, Jim and I talked at length about the music of Skatefish getting a rebirth after being out of print and largely unavailable for the last 40 years. But since 2019, Skatefish has been working on reintroducing this brilliant but largely unheard bank of music and getting it back into circulation. Now, in my own opinion, had circumstances been different, their 1979 debut album would have been considered to be a groundbreaking classic. It certainly deserved to be. Unfortunately, things don't always work out the way they should. Part of the problem with being ahead of your time is the risk of being wildly misunderstood. Skafish was not only shocking in how they looked, they sang about subjects that at the time were seen as very controversial and taboo. It's only now, after spending years of trying to obtain the rights to his previous records, that audiences are getting a chance to finally judge for themselves what Skafish was all about. The music was astonishing and complex and thrilling, even when they were addressing complicated subject matter in the lyrics. And as I said to Jim last April, that 1979 debut album is quickly becoming one of my all-time favorites. But to make that vision come to light, Jim needed to find world-class musicians to join in. And Jim will be the very first to tell you he surrounded himself with some of the most astounding musicians that he could find. That included my guest today, who Jim Scafish called one of the greatest drummers in the world, a man who Miles Copeland of IRS Records once referred to as his second favorite drummer only behind his brother Stuart from the police. That guy is Larry Meislevic. Larry is a graduate from the DePaul University School of Music. He played with Jim Scafish from 1976 to 1985, but he also became a touring member for another musical visionary, Iggy Pop, in 1981. Now, I will tell you that as someone who plays drums, listening to Larry Meislevic play on that first Skatefish record and the amazing What's This compilation, you begin to realize that Jim Skatefish and Miles Copeland were not kidding about this guy. Larry Meislevic is that kind of drummer. So when I had a chance to talk to him, I absolutely was not going to pass that up. This is my conversation with drummer Larry Meislevic from his lake house in northern Wisconsin on Baxi's Musical Podcast. You're in Tomahawk. You couldn't get away. You couldn't get further away from from people if you tried. So you're familiar with Tomahawk. I am. I am marginal. Well, I've never been to Tomahawk, but I've been to uh, uh, Wausau, Rhinelander, Manaqua, Eagle River. I've been up there, but I haven't. I, I don't remember. Oh. I don't recall ever being up in uh, in in Tomahawk. I, I spent 11 years in Milwaukee. You know, oh, okay. Going through. I went to college at Marquette, and then you know got you know once I graduated, I ventured out of the big city for a while and uh, found myself in like door county and and uh w- what's the name of the, the the lake over there well the the biggest lake in tomahawk is nokomis 
Yes, that's it. That's I mean, there's a thousand lakes. I'm on Lake Alice, which is part of the Wisconsin River. Uh, and Tomahawk, yeah, we. I came up with my two kids, son and daughter. My wife stayed home with the dog, the chickens, and the cat and all that. <laughs> uh, she don't like to travel too much. So I come up here with them sometimes. And uh, I've been coming up to Tomahawk since I was probably eight years old or so. My family used to come up here to Lake Manson and uh, rent cabins when we were kids, you know. Yeah. So uh, it, I'm kind of fond of this place. But, yeah, we went to Rhinelander. We went to Manaqua. You know, we... We drive around, and uh, Tim's Hill is like the highest point in Wisconsin. We went there yesterday, you know. I'm not, I'm not uh, outdoorsy enough to go you know, trolling for muskies. I'm, I'm much better catching, like, lake perch on a plate. Oh, we've been trying to fish, uh, you know, because a boat comes with the cabin. You know, you pay for it. But uh, we're not having too much luck on Lake Alice. We have better luck on Manson. But we caught some bluegill. Uh, I caught a perch yesterday. Uh, she caught a big sucker fish and a bass. But... I'm not cleaning anything. We're just uh, catching, releasing. Uh, I'm kind of done with a lot of that uh, <laughs> cleaning and stuff. But, I mean, if I caught something really, you know, some nice perch, I probably would have had a perch dinner, you know. Of course you would. You know, it's it's so great to talk to you because, you know, my discovery of skatefish is it's kind of like a, it's got a bit of a of a route here. I, I, I first saw or learned of skatefish when I was at Marquette uh, at the campus radio station when we talked to Jim. I kind of explained this, and and then once the reissues came out in 2019, and I got and I actually got a chance to really listen to this music, I I could not believe what I was hearing, and I couldn't believe how how much I enjoyed it and how ahead of its time it was, and and even I mean even today, I mean, when you look back at those days now, how do you see what Skatefish was was all about, and and the vision that Jim had for that band? Well, I'll be honest. I, uh, the way I got hooked up with Jim was, uh, see, I went to DePaul University to study uh, music, uh, percussion and all that. And I got my degree and I started teaching drums at a local music store, uh, you know, in, in Hammond, Indiana. And I get a call one day from uh, Jim, Jim, and he says, uh, hey, I'd like you to come in. Uh, this is 1976. He said, I'd like you to come in uh try for my band. I got a, I got a unique band I'm putting together. And see, I've always been into uh, off-the-wall music. I mean, I, I was conventional. My first records were, of course, Beatles, and that's why I started playing drums and rock, you know. But uh, I was my, my first uh, uh, like was like Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention and Captain Beefheart and things sure. like that. So when Jim called me, I didn't know what to expect. I went down to his basement. I started to... Uh, he threw some songs at me. I don't even remember what they were, if they were his or covered. And I played, and I says, well, what's the story? He goes, well, your name's been popping up. Every time I ask, I'm looking for a drummer, somehow your name comes up. I go, well, that's interesting, you know. So uh, after hearing him, I thought, man, this is something different. This is not, I'm not going to be playing the blues or playing the stones or, you know, anything conventional. This is something I think I'm really going to like, because I was, like I say, into things that were not uh, that conventional. And I wanted to step out into something that was more unique. I had a little bit of history in jazz, of course, uh, you know, going to DePaul University. Uh, that's where uh, the Chicago, some of the guys in Chicago uh, studied. And right. so I was into like Buddy Rich, uh, Joe Morello, the drummers like Jack Dejanet. So when Jim called me and I finally saw it, I was interested but i'm thinking what what the hell is this <laughs> i couldn't actually figure it out at first 
people <laughs> say that, you know, Skatefish was the first punk band in Chicago. I mean, they're really, this is 1976. I mean, punk hadn't even been given a name yet. There's no context for this kind of music. And really, in, in, in my mind, it's avant-garde music. And at the time, it is. Yeah, and it the, is. It's not punk. It's not punk. I mean, there's punk is, I guess, described as very harsh guitars and fast pumping drums. And of course, he had that, but he had so much more of a unique uh, flavor to his music. I mean, it it did transcend <clears throat> rock and roll, went into jazz and, and avant garde and and classical. And Jim, I don't know if it, a lot of people know this, but. He is just a, a phenomenal piano player. He's, uh, you know, he's like a Liberace in, in, in my eyes. You know, he can play. So that's what attracted me to it. I mean, there was it was so much more, and I liked jazz. I liked things like that, and I saw the potential, but I also saw that this was going to be very hard to sell because those were the days of what we called then dinosaur music. That was, you know, Journey and, uh, <laughs> you know, all the, the the bands that were just playing conventional really good rock and roll, but conventional rock and roll. And this was something totally off the wall, especially Jim's uh, unique uh, appearance and demeanor. And you're right about that. I mean, you think about the, the bands that were you know, specific to Chicago at, at the time, you know, Ario Speedwagon and, and, and Sticks, and, you know, at least like Cheap Trick, for example, had a unique look, but there was nothing like Skayfish anywhere in whether it's Chicago or anywhere in the country. And you couldn't have asked for anything more shocking and, seemingly dangerous than to have a band sing songs like sign of the cross or, you know, executive exhibitionist. I mean, these, these are, these are songs that maybe topics that, that, that Zappa might've covered later in his career. But I mean, these were way out there at, at the time and, and remarkably courageous to be singing about stuff like this. Absolutely. And you know, his appearance shocked people. And for the most part, uh, for normal people, I would say normal rock people, turned him off. I mean, I recall a show we did in Rockford and Cheap Trick was a fan of ours. Uh, I don't know how they became connected, but they were a fan of ours. And we did a show in Rockford one night and it was, it was probably January or February. I can't remember, but they started to throw snowballs at Jim and us at the stage, you know, and all of a sudden Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick steps up in front of the stage and challenges them and says, uh, you know, knock it off or you're going to be dealing with me. And, and that's when they were just rising uh, to their fame. It was probably 77, 78. I don't know. And he held the crowd off and told him, knock it off. I like this band. And that <laughs> was pretty cool. You know, when I talked to Jim back uh, in, in April, we talked uh, you know, quite a lot about some of those, those early shows. And my thought in all of that and hearing some of the, the reactions that people had about this band as a member of this band, did you ever think to yourself, hey, maybe this is just a bit too much for me to want to stick around in? I mean, I could get my ass kicked or killed. Did you well, have two things about that. Um, there were ups and downs. I mean, you know, we were we were turned down by record companies. Oh, that's just too much. I know, remember Robin McBride recorded a four-song demo and took it to Mercury Records, and they, they, they threw him out of the, uh, the boardroom. I mean, we're not signing this this garbage you know this isn't uh journey or our sticks or so i mean uh there were a lot of ups and downs but one of the pluses was when scott cameron uh took us on scott uh, was our manager and he had at the time he was managing uh, willie dixon muddy waters mighty joe young mm. and stan kenton i mean these were all blues and you know big band and 
he took us on because he told uh, a friend of his he wanted to uh, delve into the rock and roll. And he came down to Jim's basement, and it was just so weird. We let him down to the basement, someone did, and we played like four songs. And uh, he kind of ha- stood there or sat there with his mouth open. I mean, but a few days later, um, he took us on. I mean, it, it, he saw the potential, too, but he also saw it was going to be hard to sell this band. And he tried and tried and tried until finally Miles Copeland with his uh, international record syndicate, IRS Records, you know, Miles is the was the manager of the police. He took us on and signed us to a record deal, and that was the the major up. I want to talk to you about Miles Copeland uh, just a little bit because uh, <clears throat> obviously he plays a pretty significant role in your career. Did Miles himself see you guys first, or was he told? I, wasn't his, his other brother Ian that's that seen you guys first? You knew would have to ask Jim that. I can't remember how Miles uh, became connected with us if he saw a show i'm assuming so uh because there was really not much i mean there was some we did like i say those demos and stuff but i don't know if he saw a show or or scott cameron talked to him but he had to have seen us or heard something significant to want to science but he was in that stage miles was in that stage where he was looking for new wave bands uh bands other than the conventional bands and that's when he started signing us and the go-go's and uh you know, bands like that. And so, yeah, I think he probably saw a show. I hope the one he went to was the Sean on our show. <laughs> Cause, cause, oh, to... that was crazy. Right. Yeah. A, a crowd that came to, for a convention, a uh, very, very conservative uh, moms and pops and daughters and sons. And, and we're on stage and Jim is, you know, doing his thing. And finally, I think after about half hour or so on the show, they, they just shut us down. They told us, no, get off the stage. And, <laughs> It was, but that, that was a crazy show. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, some of the visuals that the, the band had, but one of the things that's very striking about Scafish particularly is the, the lyrical content. And like I said before, I mean, you're, you're talking about things that, you know, bands actually not even just bands, just in general, these kind of conversations just didn't happen. You know, sex abuse scandals in the church, uh, pedophilia, exhibitionism, uh, you know, bullying, fat shaming, your gender identity, all these things that are probably 25, 30 years you know, off from being actually part of a national discussion. At the time, to hear these things being talked about or sung about in, in, in 76, 77, the reactions to that also had to be strong, not just visually, but lyrically, people had to react to that stuff. Absolutely, and I think those that listened to the lyrics uh, were very shocked by it. Uh, for the most part, on the shows, I don't know if they were listening or hearing the lyrics, actually, but were so stunned by what was happening on stage that that was all it took to uh, get the eggs being thrown and the the bottles and the other things that were thrown uh, throughout our early uh, career there. But I think that uh, the lyrics, for those who listened to it, it was like, what what is this? I mean, see, Jim's Jim's music was basically him. I mean, it was what he experienced as a child growing up because he was different from the day he was born. And as you know, but from talking to him, his parents took him to psychiatrist. They, you know, he was the black sheep of the family, so to say. And so all these things being bullied in school and, uh, you know, even laughed at by the teachers uh, that had a, a tremendous element in why he reacted such with his music. But he all, but it was music, you know. Besides the lyrics, 
he set it to like a type of music that was so refined. I mean, his, his keyboard playing Javier Cruz's synthesizer, uh, you know, it was all, it was not rock and roll per se. And he surrounded himself with, you know, tremendous musicians. I mean, yourself included, but like you say, Javier Cruz was, was, uh, was terrific. And, you know, Larry Maslin, I mean, these, you could not perform that kind of music live unless this band was well rehearsed and tight. Oh. And, and there certainly was a, a big element of that with the way, you know, Jim was kind of putting you guys through the, the, the grinder there. Oh, we were, we were through the grinder. There was no day off from rehearsal. And I'm not exaggerating that. We rehearse seven days a week, and uh, rain or shine, sick or healthy, we rehearsed. And this band was well rehearsed. And it was like, it was unique the way it would come together. I mean, he, he never told me exactly what I had to play, but he would make suggestions of, of what he wanted to hear, you know, what he wanted to feel. And that was up to me to pull that out of myself and interject it to his music. I mean, he did have some top-notch musicians. I mean, Greg Sarche, the first bass player, of course, uh, went on to be the principal bass player of the Lyric Opera and still is. I mean, he's he's tremendous. He went through, uh, you know, several music schools and and uh, later on the bass player uh, Lee Gatlin, who we did on that show uh, that tour with the Police, he was from Minneapolis. He he played with Prince for a while. And I mean, he was just an, a tremendous bass player and Javier is beyond or was beyond on keyboards. As a half rate drummer myself, when I hear music that may be unfamiliar and I, and I, you know, I tend to listen to what's going on in the rhythm section first sometimes. And I'm listening to what you're playing and I'm listening to like, uh, you know, Joan fan club, for example, it's like a pretty unique pattern you got. And I'm just listening to it you know, and saying, wait a minute, I, got, I have to listen to that again. What is he doing? As a guy, like I said, a half-rate drummer who, you know, struggled to figure out a paradiddle, I was blown away by what you did. I mean, it was it's remarkable work for a debut album. I mean, you could not do that unless you guys knew exactly what you were doing. Exactly. We, we went into the studio knowing exactly how the songs were going to be played. And, uh, but at that, uh, in that respect, the albums never to my opinion, this is my opinion, do justice to what we sounded like live. I wish there was a live recording of a good one, not these, uh, you know, tape uh, cassette players of people, but I mean, a really good live recording because the live recording was so much more electric, in my opinion, as was the first and second album. And like I say, on, on uh, Sink or Swim or Sign It Across, I was drawing on my jazz influence of my buddy rich uh you know roles and that type thing you know to try to uh fit in what jim was was looking for when you got a guy like you know miles copeland calling jim uh the actual quote was a, a, a fucking genius and calling you his second favorite drummer behind his brother Stuart. you know obviously this is a guy who's who's, who's blowing you up pretty good and irs records is is an emerging independent label at at the time and, you know, they're getting a bigger roster as, as the years go by. In your opinion, though, when the first album came out, what stood in its, in its way? I mean, when I listen to it now, I'm thinking, my God, what a, what a great record. And, I, and, and in 1978, 79, I probably would have, you know, would have loved it for the rest of my life. What do you think stood in the way of that becoming uh, the classic record that it should have been? I, it wasn't promoted. Yeah. That, that's my opinion directly. I mean... He he put it out there and and see Miles did that with bands. I mean, the, the, if you know the uh, story of the police, uh, 
he didn't dump money into bands. I mean, the police went on their first tour of America riding around in a, a van, a regular small, you know, van, and played little shows, hundreds of little shows all over the place uh, for probably little or, you know, money or whatever, enough to cover expenses. He didn't dump like, like you know, like major record companies, Arista or, or Electra or whatever, dumping, you know, you get a $100,000 advance and then we're going to promote your album. And he didn't do that. He kind of recorded the album, pressed it, and I think he just kind of haphazardly uh, promoted it to see if it would fly. It was never really, the money was never put into it to push that album. And secondly, uh, I think because at the time it was still too unique for what people were listening to. Like, like I say, we were still in the age of dinosaurs. We were still REO, uh, Sticks, uh, that type music. So when the first album came out, it wasn't conventional enough to sell to the, the, the mainstream public. I mean, the people that were into that bought it, but that's, there were not enough people at that point. Right. That was 1980, I believe. It's interesting because if, if you go and, and watch, and YouTube's got the the clip of this, you guys playing it on the Erg the Music War, and you're playing you know, Sign of the Cross in that film. And you you, yes. you listen to how it sounds live. I mean, you're, I think you're right. I think, you know, there's no way to replicate, you know, the kind of power that band had on a, on a record that, you know, wasn't promoted and, and, and didn't sell. I think I think if people really want to know what that band was about, that footage is really what speaks the loudest uh, of maybe anything that's ever been released on Skatefish. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was sacrilegious, but see, if, if people would realize why Jim did that, it's because he was so brutally uh, put down by, you know, the church and all that when he was growing up. Because, I mean, you know, we were all raised Catholic in uh, East Chicago, Indiana, and and like I say, he went through, you know, Catholic schools, and and, you know, he was put down, and he saw the abuse, and so that's what it's basically was his way of saying, you know, I, I don't believe in this conventional type religion. Right. So when I talked to him, because you know, he's you know getting ready to release the uh, the second album, The Conversation, and, uh, and a bunch of rejected songs. And then to me, the second album is a fascinating story because you guys record the record. It gets presented to IRS. And then Miles Copeland, who had been as supportive as he could have been in the, in the early part of your career suddenly turns and rejects eight songs off that record. Many of which have never been heard. Yeah. And it, yes. it, it, it feels it, it, I mean, it, it feels like a, like a remarkable turn of events. And, and I'm so glad that, that Jim is, is getting ready to re release that stuff so people can hear, you know, what that stuff was, was all about. When Miles Copeland rejected that music, what was the feeling of the of the band? It had to be completely demoralizing. It probably demoralized Jim a lot. And see, at that point, I had moved to California, and I was already touring with with Iggy Pop. And and what I was doing was flying back to record. I, an interesting story. We I had a show with Iggy at night somewhere in the Midwest. This happened on a couple occasions, and. During the morning, I would take a flight out. Jimmy Sons, of course, the lead singer of The Shadows of Night, he was our, our tour manager, you know. He would pick me up at O'Hare Airport, drive me to Pumpkin Studios, Gary Loizzo Studios, where I would record my, my tracks, my drum tracks. I would fly back in the afternoon. I'd had to miss the, the uh, sound check, obviously, and then play the show with Iggy the, the, that night. And I remember I had to ask Jim's, you know, Iggy's permission. I call him Jim. Um, 
hey, uh, they want me to record some songs. Uh, you mind if I take off? And he goes, no, no, they can borrow my drummer, you know. And so uh, I would. it was so crazy. I would fly into Chicago, record my tracks, and fly back. Uh, I didn't have my, my drum set. I don't know what, what set I used. So actually, I don't even remember the songs that I recorded because there was so much going on. Uh, and I do know that that Miles made him pick uh, some really uh, – soft sell songs. They weren't the ones that we initially recorded. So yeah, I, I'm interested to hear that too. I don't even know how my performance is on those songs. Yeah, though. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It, it, it sounds like it's going to be great. And, and, and Jim is really excited about it. You can, you can certainly, you can really sense that he's just, you know, itching to get this thing uh, finally, uh, finally finished. I want to ask you about, about Iggy pop uh, here a little bit, because I find it somewhat you know, ironic that you go from a band where the audience wants to kick the shit out of you to a band in which the audience is probably the one more likely to get the shit kicked out of them by Iggy. So tell me about uh, about that and how you got involved with him. Well, that's that's interesting. Um, what had happened in early 1981 in January, I decided to move out to Los Angeles, uh, California, because I wanted to sample what's going on out there. And, and see, that's when the album, this Escapish album, like I say, was not selling. Um, I talked to Jim about it and he says, yeah, go ahead. That way you can get some prospects, see what's going on out there. We'll still keep the band together, which was nice, you know? So I move out to LA. I started to get a re regular job in a health food store. I was always into health foods, by the way. And, um, I'm working and I called miles Copeland up because we kept in contact. And like I say, he liked me. So he was living in, in uh, Hollywood. I give him a call. And I says, miles, I'm looking for a band. If, if anything comes up, uh, would you please give me a call? Well, I think a couple months go by, and I get a call from Miles, and he goes, uh, Hey, Lair, uh, Iggy Pop is looking for a drummer. He's going on tour shortly. I go, Hmm, okay. He goes, I gave him your number, and here's his number. Give him a call, and uh, you guys take it from there. But I told him, You're the guy. You're the guy he needs to do this, this tour. So I called Jim up, or Iggy up. He says, send me a tape uh, just so I can hear a little bit of what you did. But we had toured with Iggy before, so he kind of, maybe he didn't pay attention. I don't know. So I sent him the tape. He, he writes me a letter, which I still have. I had that posted on Facebook uh, a while back. And he says, yep, uh, you know, my tour manager will be calling you up in a, in a, a few days, uh, set up the rehearsals in New York and blah, blah, blah. And it went on from there. And so two, three weeks later, I'm flying to New York and we're rehearsing up in a loft up in, uh, you know, up in New York. And then we did the tour started in October of that year. That was 82. But Miles, Miles Copeland was the one who hooked me up. And I didn't even have to do a live audition because Miles told him, you know, he, his word was good enough, I guess. I don't know. This is at a weird time for Iggy, too, because he had just come off of, uh, I think, the, the release of Zombie Birdhouse, which he recorded with Clem Burke uh, and, and Chris Stein from uh, from Blondie. <laughs> And uh, Robbie Dupree from uh, uh, the Mumps, but there's a block of time yeah. between that and his his next album, which I I don't think he recorded anything until like four years later. Did you actually wind up recording anything with Iggy, or was it all on the road? Well, there is a live album that I just found a few weeks ago, and it's a live album of us. It's called Let's See, Iggy Pop. Your pretty face is going to hell. And it's a, a, a recording. Someone cop, captured a recording we did on October 28th in 1982 during a zombie birdhouse tour. It was recorded live in Toronto, and it has 
18 songs on it. And like I say, uh, I found a copy on eBay, actually. I don't know how, but so that's the only thing. Plus the, I don't know if you ever saw the footage of us on the tube. Yes. That is a really cool footage uh, of did see us uh, playing on the tube in, in uh, December 17th of 8082. You know, I- Iggy Pop is, you know, obviously now, now the second you know legendary genius you've now worked with. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, he really has taken off. His... His reputation by the time you're playing with him has had already been cemented. Everything from the Stooges to you know those albums with uh, with David Bowie and and now oh, yes. and he's you know now he's 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 still recording really great albums. I mean, you know, Zombie Birdhouse is a really good album, and he's you know a couple of years away from blah blah blah. What is it? Rob like? Dupre Rob Dupre wrote the music, uh, most of the music. He collaborated with. Uh, Iggy on that Zombie Birdhouse album. Uh, Rob had been with him since 1980, I believe. It's a it's a totally underrated record. But what is it like to be on the road with him? My understanding for people that I know that that have that have talked to him, and I have unfortunately not yet had a chance, is there's really there's really kind of two people operating there. Absolutely. And then there's Jim Osterberg. For the second time, I got it years ago. It's called Open Up and Iggy Bop. Open Up and Bleed. If you can find it, it is the most how can I say a thorough book on his life from the beginning till 19 around 1986 or 88, I think it goes. But uh, this book really chronologically goes through every stage. And I don't know how this uh, Trenka, Paul Trenka, I believe is the, I, I contacted him the other day too. He's the author. And if you can ever find it, I mean, it, it's definitely out there. You can get it on, on probably Amazon or, or uh, eBay, open up and bleed. It really goes through his stages, and he was going up and down different stages. Of course, you know his history with drugs and, and sure. all that. Uh, but uh, yeah, he it was unique. I mean, there was uh, some really cool times and some really scary times. I mean, I remember when the Hell's Angels invaded our dressing room in London the day before we did that tube uh, live TV show. By the way, and. Uh, I guess what happened on the tour before he had he had done something to piss him off. I don't know what it was. You'd have to ask Rob Dupre, I think, because he was on that tour. And uh, they invaded our dressing room, and uh, they didn't harm us physically, but they let us know that at any moment <laughs> <laughs> shit could break loose. Yeah. You know, and so you know they drank our, our our you know liquor or whatever they had. They ate our food, and it was kind of like, hey, this is we're in charge here. <laughs> I've seen Iggy a couple of times uh, live, and and every time it's 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 mind blowing that this guy has just so much energy and and presence. I mean, it's it's not it's simply not human. Still, <laughs> what he, still, what he, still I, know, I, I just saw I him, know I just saw him on March 11th at Chicago in Chicago at the Salt Salt Shed, uh, and he still has the same amount of energy and. And yeah, I mean, we always laughed in the band. We always used to say, if there's a nuclear war, we'd all be blown away. And all of a sudden, Iggy would crawl up from the rubble. <laughs> and and that's pretty much it. I mean, he's indestructible, in my opinion. But as an individual, like you know, say, there's a, there's a second aspect of him, the Jimmy, you know, Osterberg part of him. You know, what kind of oh, guy yeah. is? What kind of guy? I mean, he's a very intelligent, well-spoken type of guy. And I don't know if people really get that or you know they just you know think of him just cutting his chest and smearing peanut butter all over the place right and if you read paul Trenka's book he explains that it's it's the classic dr jekyll and mr hyde when iggy is on he's he's brutal he's mean he's uh you know forceful 
And then the side of Jim Osterberg is very well-read, very intelligent, very, uh, uh, like I say, I mean, how can I say it, getting along with people and being very nice to people. I mean, I've seen both sides. I can tell you a story about a month into our tour when I signed up with him. I was talking to him, and he goes, you know, by the way, he goes, Clem Burke, what happened, how I got the job was Clem Burke did the album. He did the tour before. But Blondie was supposed to go on a tour, I believe, of Japan and get back together because they had been on a hiatus. Right. And so he said, I can't do the tour, Jim. I, I'm out. I'm going with Blondie. Well, that's when I got the call. About a month into the tour, Jim goes, by the way, about a week after I hired you, uh, Clem called and says, hey, we're not doing the tour. I can do the tour. And <laughs> believe it or not, Jim Osterberg told him, nope. I already hired this guy. He's quit his job. He's uh, already preparing to come out here. I'm sorry, Clem, but uh, I already told him he's got the job. Now, to me, all he had to do was call me up and say, hey, by the way, buddy, uh, Clem's in. He did the album. He knows the songs. He, but, you know, he's a nationally known drummer. Uh, he didn't do that. Yeah. He, he honored his commitment. And if that tells you what Jim Osterberg is like, I think that's all you need to say. That's amazing. And, you know, it's, it's not so unlike stories I've heard about David Bowie and, and his loyalty to people around him. And, and I got to believe that the, it, that's a two-way street between the two of them because, I mean, they collaborated. I mean, they would continue to collaborate even after you were done uh, you know, playing with yeah. him. What, event yeah. what eventually led to you leaving his band? Well, it wasn't my choice. What happened was we were... After we finished, uh, our last tour was we rehearsed in Hawaii. That's another cool story. He decided that New York was too cold or whatever. He was sick of New York. Let's go to Hawaii and rehearse and do some shows before we go to Japan. So he put us up. Uh, we were on Waikiki Beach or Waikiki, and we stayed at the Ilikai Hotel, a beautiful hotel. We rehearsed like three hours a day, and the rest of the time was ours, you know, driving around the island, uh, eating pineapples, whatever, laying on the beach. <laughs> So we went to Hawaii. We did some shows there. We flew over to Japan, and then we we did some shows. We did about two or three weeks in Australia. But at that point, he got kind of fed up with everything and just disbanded the band. He says, "I'm done. I I, I want to go back to L.A. and and whatever." So he just kind of he kind of quit us. We didn't quit him. Mm. So he kind of quit us, and then he didn't do anything for a few years. And I think not until '85 or '86. Did he start recording? And he he got a whole new band out of England. In fact, I don't know if you know who Gavin Harrison is. Yeah, yeah, he plays with King Crimson now and Porcupine yes. uh, something. Yes. He actually replaced me uh, as the next drummer. So I feel kind of wild. It was like I had Clem Burke on one side of me, and then <laughs> Gavin Harrison, who's an incredible drummer, who who joined up with uh, Iggy on the uh, on the other side. Yeah, you know, if you're going to be replaced by anybody, you know, Gavin Harrison wouldn't be a bad choice, I suppose. Yeah, that's not that's a good choice. So after that that band you know, disperses and, and he's on to other things, what did you do after that? I mean, obviously you're still playing music. I think you you were teaching for a while. What did you what did you wind up doing? Well, I stayed in L.A. until around 1988, uh, and at that point, I was playing in different different bands. I did some uh, recording, you know with different bands and that type of thing. I always stayed in the music thing, but it never uh, turned back out to where I threw with Iggy or, or anything like that. I, we actually Scavish did a tour in, uh, in California hmm. after that time. We went uh, up and down the coast and 
we we did a tour. But that was the last hurrah as far as the the Skatefish Band. I believe that might have been '86. I can't re- recall, but I believe it was around '86 we did a tour uh, around California. Scott Cameron. Uh, see, Scott had an office out there in L.A. That so I got to visit him frequently. In fact, it was cool one day. Scott calls me and says, "Hey, uh, it's Willie Dixon's birthday. Do you want to come down to his house and for his party?" So I got to go to Willie Dixon's house out in California, there in L.A. somewhere, and go to his birthday party. And that was through Scott Cameron. <laughs> it's uh, I went onto Wikipedia, and uh, it said that you had become a police officer in in Northern Indiana. Is is that right? That's absolutely correct. Uh, see, after I gave up professionally uh, music. I'm not the type of person that could stock a shelf or sit in an office. That just wasn't me. I, I've always been a hands-on person. I mean, I studied a lot of martial arts. I took a lot of, you know, martial arts training, uh, lifted weights like a maniac and, you know, that kind of thing. So I always was something, I wanted to do something that was hands-on and physical. And I did become a police officer and, uh, I did that for over 30 years. Wow. What's more dangerous, being a, a cop in northern Indiana or opening up for Sean Anna? I think Sean Anna, because <laughs> you have no weapons or nothing to protect you. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. You're you're vulnerable. You're on, I mean, Sean Anna <laughs> wasn't the only time we got pelted. We got pelted. We did uh, uh, Chicago Fest, our Navy on Navy Pier, mm-hmm. and uh, we got pelted with. I mean, I could see sandwiches flying by me. Uh, uh, but I started tilting my symbols a little bit, just like Ringo said. He used to tilt his symbols a little bit when it got crazy. And uh, so, yeah, we got pelted. And when we opened for Iggy, I mean, Iggy got pelted with eggs. I remember back then when we did some shows with him, like at beginnings and stuff. And for some reason, that was a thing these people thought was the thing to do. I remember Milton Kings, when we opened for the police on that big outdoor show, uh, Jim got hit with a bottle, I believe, or something. It was one of those times he got hit in the head with a bottle. So it was dangerous. I would, I think, I was more protected doing my conventional police job. <laughs> you did have sticks you could throw back, and we always had that. I did, I did have sticks, and <laughs> and like I say, you know, I was trained. So I mean, if anything got really physical, I was, I would hope that I could defend myself. But I mean, you can't defend when you're playing without a bottle's flying at your skull. You know, I mean, that's something that. <laughs> no, uh, and Jim took the most of the hits. I'll be honest with you. Jim really was the warrior. As far as that went, he uh, he took most of the direct hits, as did Iggy. I mean, some of the Iggy things we did, uh, he was getting whacked. And, and when he'd get pissed, he would just turn to the band and go, Louie, Louie. And we would launch into about a 20-minute uh, <laughs> version of Louie, Louie. And, he's, you know, he would taunt the audience. I mean, he, and you know that from uh, oh, yeah. reading his history. And if you read that book, you'll really know it. But, yeah, he would taunt the audience. And, and he got laid out a few times, not in my when I was with him, but uh, I read on the other tours and Rob has told me where one time he got just some guys off it. I don't know if they were in France or whatever. And they chased the whole band back to the band bus and Iggy disappeared and, and got away unscathed, but the whole band got their ass beat up. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's dangerous. I mean, this is the rock and roll. Wasn't, uh, you know, the jelly beans with the Beatles and, and all that kind of thing. It was like, uh, Gird your loins, baby, because we're gonna we're up for some heavy, heavy stuff, you know. Yeah, you know, and I just can't see guys like Kevin Cronin doing that with REO or you know Dennis DeYoung doing that with sticks. I just don't see no. them being those kinds of guys. I think it was just the type of audience that the more out there bands, the dangerous bands attracted. They didn't attract the 
And that's why, you know, going back to your question about the Skate Fish album, that's why it didn't sell that great, because the, the, the mainstream fans didn't come to these concerts. It's, what's so interesting to me is in, in, in listening to the things that Jim has, has reissued, and and really feeling like, yeah, you know, I in a way I I feel I feel bad because I think you know I think the world has been denied of this music for so long with it being out of print and and largely unavailable. I keep I keep hearing you know the word genius thrown around with 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 Jim Scafish, and it is very hard for me to argue against that based upon the vision he had, the talent he had, who he surrounded himself with. And to me, it's like one of those, you know, great musical mysteries. Like, you know, how could this not have been enormous? And, you know, I, I agree with you. Lack of promotion. You know, maybe, you know, he was, you know, too far, you know, ahead of the curve. But, you know, in, in your opinion, does the word genius fit a guy like Jim Scafish? I believe that would have to be what your opinion of genius is. Is uh, Albert Einstein a genius? Yes, he's been uh, noted as a genius uh, for his, uh, you know, his theories and his developments and all that. Uh, the guy that invented the light bulb, he's a genius. Is he a genius? I mean, I think the word genius applies to anyone that works very hard and comes up with something that no one else has been able to come up with. And in that respect, Jim Scafish is a genius. He came up with music that no one had had done or has done since. I mean, yeah. no one has done this. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of avant-garde music and there's a lot of great music, but it wasn't unique in the way Jim presented his life story. And that's what his music is. His music is his life story. And I think Iggy Pop is a genius. I mean, to come through so many pitfalls and ups and downs and continue at 75 years old, to still be belting out one hell of a show. I mean, the guy should have been dead 40 years ago. <laughs> there aren't that many 75-year-old men that could get away with singing raw power, and everyone still believes it. Absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely, absolutely a fact. Larry, it's, yes. your career is just so interesting to me. I mean, to have had the opportunity to be you know, in both of these bands and you know, have you know, a, a life outside of it and to emerge as a guy who's just relaxing in Tomahawk, Wisconsin, I, I applaud you. <laughs> and I, and I, and I feel envious of you because, uh, uh, I mean, you're, you're a remarkable talent and, and the stories are fantastic. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I've, uh, had my time and now I, I still play locally. I, I still love playing drums. I'm a drum collector. I've collected several different drum sets. I, I, I tend to collect vintage drums. Mm. Um, I, I look for, you know, vintage drums, and I've gotten some really nice ones that I found either in pawn shops or at drum shows and all that. I still continue to go to the Chicago drum show. I still play a lot of gigs around town, and uh, I'm not ready to quit yet, but uh, no, I mean, uh, it's been a one hell of a ride. So, so I'm out of, uh, just out of curiosity, you, you, you have you know, several drums, vintage drums. What's, uh, what's, what's your prized possession right now? Well, I have a beautiful old early 60s campco i have the ringo sets the ludwig uh, black oyster pearls i have several of those i have old sonar uh with the teardrop lug i mean i you'd have to come and see them uh, the basement is just <laughs> shellacked the walls are shellacked with drums and i have a 1931 or 32 ludwig engraved black beauty snare drum i mean wow gongs i still have uh three gongs 
I sold my timpani, my my beautiful King George marimba, which was uh, unique. I, I bought that when I was going to DePaul because I needed an instrument to practice. This I found out that this instrument, the King George marimba, was one of 100 specially made by Deegan for a 100 marimba people that were going over to London to do a show. I mean, 100 people put together. This, <laughs> I mean, they had 100 people in this marimba group that went over on a boat, and this, these were made in 1939, like an idiot. Sometime <laughs> in the early 80s or mid-80s, I should say late 80s, I sold it, and uh, I'm still kicking myself for that. When I was in college, I sold my first kit, and it was a uh, it was an old vintage Slingerland Radio King, you know, Blue Sparkle. Oh, my God. It was, yes, it was yes. a, and, and, and I sold it for $400 so I could buy textbooks. And I, yep. I and I regret I regret that because you know I got a hell of a lot more out of those drums than I ever did out of those books or a college those textbooks. Right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I always I always kick myself. And uh, that was just that was just a, a a great set. Well, they're still available. I know and they you are. You can still find Radio King uh, drums. Uh, you got to watch because a lot of them are out of round. Uh, they, you know, like I said, because the way they were made and. But yeah, they're still available. I mean, you might pay a little more than four hundred dollars for them now. But uh, yeah, I mean, go to vintage drum shows. They those people bring all the vendors bring all their stuff, and it, it's really a cool thing to do. I think if I brought more drum equipment into the, uh, my house, my wife would have my ass for dinner. I think mine's given up. I mean, uh, <laughs> after you know, yeah, uh, you know, it's just something that I do, and you know, I, I provide. I don't uh, hold back. You know, I don't. Keep other people uh, wanting, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I know, my, I know exactly what you're saying. needs, you know. Yep. Once that bug gets in you, it's very, very hard to let it go. I mean, you always look. You're always looking. You're always kind of shopping, even if you have no intention to buy. You got to see. Well, what's that guy got? Yeah, you know, there's no way to. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just went to the Chicago Drum Show was on May 20th, 20th and 21st, so I went to that, and you're like a kid in a candy store. I mean, there's just <laughs> thousands and thousands of drums and parts and cymbals and new and, and, you know, vintage and new, you know, I think that's, I think that's our drug, Larry. I it think, is my drug. It is. It's totally it is a drug. My drug. <laughs> like I say, I, I, I didn't do drug. I was mostly into martial arts, bodybuilding and health food. So drums were my drug. Playing drums are my drug. And to me, it's better than getting drunk. It's more productive. Feels better. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Larry, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I, I appreciate the time, uh, you know, while you're away, away on vacation and, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you so much. I hope it's something, you know, worthwhile for you and you, you know, you're, you're happy with it. I'm totally happy with it. Larry, thank you very much. Have a great afternoon. All right. You too. You bet. Take care. And there you have it. Listen, do yourself a favor, find yourself some skate fish and listen to it. It is absolutely incredible and that second album is on the way perhaps as early as sometime this year thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed it feel free to like it share it tell all your friends about it also thanks to ZM home buyers for their support you can follow me on all the socials and email me at backs at rock102.com i'd love to know what you think and thanks again for listening to backsy's musical podcast